The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Refractory Ascites and Esophageal Variceal Hemorrhage, Practical Guidance to Improve Patient Outcomes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XNU860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Kimberly Brown from Wayne State University and Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. Welcome to this educational activity on improving patient outcomes in refractory ascites and esophageal variceal hemorrhage. My goal today is to summarize the consequences of decompensated cirrhosis and portal hypertension and discuss the latest evidence for current and emerging approaches to managing patients with refractory ascites and esophageal variceal hemorrhage. So what are the practice gaps we're trying to address with this activity today? The first is awareness. Refractory ascites and esophageal variceal hemorrhage are poorly understood by many healthcare professionals, and this results in poor outcomes and substantial patient burden. Furthermore, many patients with refractory ascites and EVH are underdiagnosed or incorrectly treated, and this results in higher morbidity and mortality. When we look at the epidemiology of EVH and refractory ascites, we see that there are several uh, disease states that can lead to cirrhosis of the liver, and they're listed across the top. Although historically, viral hepatitis accounted for about 40% of patients with cirrhosis in the United States, this has now been surpassed by those patients with NAFLD, fatty liver, and NASH in conjunction with alcohol. Regardless of the etiology, about 0.3% of patients in America have cirrhosis of the liver, and this has several clinical consequences. The first is increased mortality. When you look at the risk of death in this patient population, it's about three times higher than age match controls. But cirrhosis can also lead to the complications we're discussing today. About 70% of patients within 10 years of diagnosis will develop ascites, and of those patients, about 10% will develop what we call refractory ascites. And refractory ascites carries with it very high mortality, about 50% between 6 to 12 months following the diagnosis. About 30% of patients can develop esophageal variceal hemorrhage within three years of diagnosis, and this increases with the severity of liver disease. And about a third of those patients will actually die uh, once they have blood from the resulting complications of cirrhosis and variceal hemorrhage. But the diagnosis of cirrhosis is really just the tip of the iceberg. Cirrhosis is often asymptomatic until the onset of decompensation. Undiagnosed cirrhosis is very common, particularly in patients with NASH fatty liver disease and hepatitis C. So it's reasonable to estimate that up to 1% of the population, or 33 million Americans, may have cirrhosis as defined histologically. There are several stages of cirrhosis. On the left, we define early cirrhosis as compensated. And what this means is that portal hypertension is elevated, uh, typically greater than five millimeters of mercury, not to exceed 10. You can have what is called clinically significant portal hypertension. These patients are still compensated. They have no signs or symptoms of liver failure, and they may or may not have varices at this point. Once we move into decompensated cirrhosis, these are patients who have clinical complications, including variceal hemorrhage, ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, 
typically these patients have portal hypertensive um, uh, numbers that exceed 12 millimeters of mercury. And as disease continues to progress, these patients develop late decompensation. In late decompensation, patients have recurrent variceal hemorrhage. They can have refractory ascites, hyponatremia. They can develop hepatorenal syndrome, recurrent encephalopathy, or jaundice. And ultimately, if left unattended, these patients go on to die. There are several prognostic indicators of cirrhosis, markers that we can use to try to assess risk for our patients with liver disease. The most commonly used is what's called the child's Pew score. This includes uh, estimates of encephalopathy, ascites, bilirubin, albumin, and INR. And patients can be uh, categorized as either child's Pew A, B, or C. You can see that child's A patients have actually a very good long-term and short-term survival. In fact, their one-year mortality approaches 0%, very similar to age-matched controls. But as patients develop further um, signs and symptoms of liver disease and their score increases, those patients who are child's Pew C have a one-year mortality that exceeds 50%. We can use MELD score. This is a commonly used scoring system for transplantation, but it also relates uh, to prognosis for patients with cirrhosis. This includes estimates of dialysis, serum creatinine, bilirubin, INR, and sodium. And you can see as the MELD score increases, the, the three-month mortality, which is really what we measure with uh, the MELD score, actually begins to increase. Those patients with very low MELD scores have a very low three-month mortality. And those patients who have scores that exceed 30 have, again, a three-month mortality that exceeds 50%. The more difficult measurement is that of hepatic venous pressure gradient, because this is an invasive measurement. And you see that this is really a measurement when we take the measures of free hepatic pressure and wedged hepatic pre uh, pressure. When you subtract the two, you get the hepatic venous pressure gradient. You can see on the right the prognostic significance as that pressure gradient increases. So normal would be considered a pressure gradient less than 5. At that level of 5 or above, we start to develop what we call portal hypertension, high pressures in the portal system. At 10, as we discussed in a previous slide, this becomes clinically significant, and patients are now at risk of starting to develop complications like varices. And then the risk of variceal hemorrhage really begins to increase in most patients, 12 or above. And you can see as the pressure gradient increases, the prognosis for the patient decreases, and in fact, they can have more and more complications as related to portal hypertension. When we look at the pathophysiology of refractory ascites and hepatorenal syndrome, obviously these patients all start with cirrhosis. And as cirrhosis or fibrosis in the liver progresses, patients develop portal hypertension. This can lead to several issues, including bacterial translocation, but most importantly, splanchnic vasodilation. The splanchnic vasodilation results in a number of different factors occurring in the body, uh, primarily the activation of vasoconstrictor systems. This can lead to renal hyperperfusion and avid sodium retention. All of these factors can lead to the formation of ascites, and as ascites progresses and worsens, patients can develop refractory ascites. But important too, cirrhosis can lead to immune dysfunction, 
This predisposes patients to an increase in bacterial infections. This can lead to sepsis. And all of these factors can further complicate the picture and contribute to the development of hepatorenal syndrome. There are diagnostic criteria for refractory ascites. The ones that are listed here are from the European Association for the Study of Liver Disease. You see that diuretic-resistant ascites, this is ascites that cannot be fully mobilized or recurs early uh, and cannot be prevented uh, because of the lack of response to sodium restriction and diuretic treatment. So patients are resistant to the common medical therapies that we impose in the presence of ascites. But we also have patients who have intractable ascites. Uh, these patients have ascites that cannot be mobilized or recurs early, and again, cannot be prevented because of the development of diuretic-induced complications, such as renal insufficiency, that really preclude the use of an effective diuretic dose. When we look at the diagnosis of refractory ascites, again, we have a patient who is becoming non-responsive to diuretics. And what are the criteria for that? Well, the maximal dose of diuretics that we typically think of include furosemide at 160 milligrams per day and spironolactone at 400 milligrams per day, either as a single or in divided doses. In patients who have achieved this dose for more than one week and have been unable to lose weight, again, that is the patient where we're diagnosing refractory ascites. We have to make sure that we're excluding other forms of uncontrolled ascites, particularly uh, malignancy. Peritoneal carcinomatosis would be refractory to diuretics, but would be another reason for refractory ascites. Patients can have nephrogenic ascites due to renal failure. And we have to understand that patients with outflow obstruction, particularly thrombosis in the hepatic veins, these patients can develop ascites that, again, would be refractory to diuretics. We need to exclude conditions that induce transient refractoriness, so things that are working against us in the patient. Medications, particularly non-steroidals that act at the level of the kidney to decrease sodium excretion. Patients can be over-diuresed, so we can give them so many diuretics that they become volume-deplete, but there can be other volume-depleting conditions such as vomiting, diarrhea, or infections. We need to exclude dietary noncompliance, and so we can look for sodium excretion within a 24-hour urine. And in patients who fulfill all of these criteria, we really now have our diagnosis of refractory ascites. One of the major complications that we can see with refractory ascites is the development of what we typically in the past called hepatorenal syndrome which is now called, uh, called HRS-AKI, or acute kidney injury. And the reason that this is such a severe complication is because of the related mortality that occurs in this patient population. Here's a data slide looking at the rates of mortality. You see that mortality rate can be as high as 50% within two weeks of the diagnosis, not two years, but two weeks. And this approaches 100% mortality within three months of the diagnosis. Without treatment, medium survival is tended to be calculated at approximately 11 days. So this is a life-threatening condition, and the survival probability of 25% really by 30 days shows how serious this is when a patient uh, develops it. When we look at varices, 
There are guidance in terms of both the disease state as well as whether the patient, again, is compensated or decompensated. So here on the left, you have the presence or absence of varices. You can see that in compensated cirrhosis in patients who have hepatic venous pressure gradients less than 10, typically varices are absent. And in the absence of varices, there are the absence of complications. In patients who develop uh, elevated um, uh, portal pressures, uh, again, greater than or equal to 10, you may or may not have varices. But when varices are present um, and there are no complications yet, our goal is really to prevent decompensation, prevent the first episode of bleeding. On the right, you see those patients who have decompensated liver disease. Typically, again, these patients have portal pressures that exceed 12. Those patients who have acute variceal hemorrhage, the goal there is to control the bleeding and then to prevent further early rebleeding in that patient. In patients who have had prior variceal hemorrhage, though, either with or without complications, again, the goal is to prevent further decompensation, which includes further or repeat bleeding episodes in that patient population. We recognize that in the majority of cases, varices are diagnosed by upper endoscopy, but there are non-invasive measures by which we can use to exclude patients who may have high-risk varices. These are called the Bravino criteria, and you can see some of the criteria listed here. Patients who would be uh, uh, with a liver stiffness score less than 20 kilopascals, that would be by elastography in uh, con conjunction with a platelet count of greater than 150,000, those patients actually have less than a 5% chance of having high-risk varices and in many cases can actually forego endoscopy as a screening tool to look for varices. We recognize, though, for all of our patients that early treatment is needed to avoid disease progression. Early cirrhosis may be reversible in some cases based on the therapeutic regimen we're using, and prompt diagnosis and treatment can slow disease progression at actually any stage of the disease. So what are some of the emerging strategies that we can look at to improve outcomes for our patients with cirrhosis complications? When we look at current treatments for portal hypertension, we can see the treatments that have evolved by site of action. So again, we recognize that portal hypertension really results from increased hepatic resistance and can result in the formation of varices, but also in, um, in the result of splanchnic vasodilation. And so really the focus of this activity today is to talk about how we target splanchnic vasodilation as a means by which to control portal hypertension and the complications that we see. When we look at managing ascites and refractory ascites, again, this is an algorithm that looks at the first uh, step in any patient with ascites is to do a diagnostic paracentesis. Again, there's, there's two reasons to do this. One is to confirm that the ascites is related to portal hypertension, measuring albumin and protein, so a high albumin gradient and a low protein ascites, that is really diagnostic of portal hypertension. But in addition to that, we need to always rule out uh, bacterial peritonitis. The first step in a patient where we have uh, a positive diagnosis is to avoid 
sodium in the diet, and to start diuretics and to avoid other things that can complicate our ability to diurese the patient, nonsteroidals, alcohol, other things that we discussed. And the goal here is to lose about a half a kilogram of water per day. And we need to monitor renal function and electrolytes during this period. In patients who respond, we continue that management. But there are patients who don't respond. In those patients, we need to check for dietary noncompliance, again, remove any offending agents, and titrate the dose of diuretics based on electrolytes and renal function. In those patients who don't respond to those measures, again, we're trying to maximize the medical therapy. Uh, we talked about the milligram dose of furosemide and spironolactone. That's maximal. But there are some patients will start to develop complications before we reach those doses, and we're unable to effectively diurese them. Those patients now have refractory ascites. In looking at treating acute GI bleeding, Again, very similar to what we saw before, the, the first best steps are to assess the patient and resuscitate the patient. These patients are losing a great deal of volume, and we want to replace that volume judiciously. Uh, there are many studies that have looked at how to replace hemoglobin in particular. And again, you can see in this algorithm, we want to really shoot for a hemoglobin of about seven in patients where we uh, allow their hemoglobin to be uh, higher, or we overtransfuse them, those patients actually have higher mortality, higher risk of bacterial infections. But the second thing that we do is we provide vasoconstriction. Again, we're trying to counteract the effects of portal hypertension, decrease the fact that the patient is bleeding, and decrease the risk of re-bleeding. And that's really, again, the focus of this activity. There are several vasoconstrictors that have been used in the management of EBH. On the left, you see the somatostatin class. This includes somatostatin, and below it, octreotide, which is really an analog of somatostatin. The advantage is that it has a longer half-life than somatostatin. These, uh, these drugs have vasoactive uh, properties. They reduce the risk of bleeding, and they reduce active bleeding and the need for transfusion, but do not affect mortality of the patient. And both are administered by continuous IV infusion. On the right, you see the vasopressin class. This includes vasopressin as well as terlipressin, which is, again, an analog of vasopressin. These are vasoconstrictive treatments. Vasopressin has to be continuously given by IV administration. Terlipressin can be administered intermittently by intermittent objection, uh, injections every four to six hours. And terlipressin is the only vasoconstrictor that reduces mortality from acute variceal hemorrhage. These are the doses of the recommended vasoactive agents for the treatment of acute variceal bleeding. You see somatostatin is given first by bolus and then followed by a continuous infusion for two to five days. The bolus can be repeated in the case of uncontrolled bleeding. Trilopressin is bolus 2 milligrams every 4 hours for the first 48 hours, and then followed by a bolus of 1 milligram every 4 hours. You can choose to give continuous infusion up to a maximum of 12 milligrams per day. This is similarly given for 2 to 5 days, and caution must be taken in patients who have coronary artery disease, uh, peripheral uh, arterial occlusive disease, hyponatremia, 
cardiac arrhythmias, or severe uh, pulmonary disease. Octreotide, which is the somatostatin analog, again is given by bolus and then followed by a continuous infusion up to two to five days. And again, similar to above, the bolus can be repeated in the case of uncontrolled bleeding. This is a meta-analysis looking at uh, the effects of mortality uh, of vasoactive drugs in the treatment of variceal hemorrhage. You can see that terlipressin on the right, on the top, rebleeding rate versus placebo. If you look on the right, the odds ratio of reduction in rebleeding is 0.38, and this was a comparison to placebo for terlipressin. On the bottom, you see similar results, which is a reduction in mortality as compared to placebo, an odds ratio of 0.2 for terlipressin. So uh, good effect for a reduction in rebleeding, as well as a reduction in overall mortality for terlipressin as compared to placebo. When you compare terlipressin and octreotide, both are found to be effective when used in combination with ligation, because this is really what we do. We don't give one or the other. We give both together. Uh, and when I say both, I mean a vasoactive drug as well as ligation. So this was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial looking at about 300 patients. And what they found was that there was similar control of variceal bleeding between terlipressin and octreotide, as well as infusion of packed red cells, as well as mortality. The advantage of terlipressin was that there was a lower length of stay with terlipressin as compared with octreotide. But important, there were no cardiovascular events that were adverse events in either group. So we know that octreotide and terlipressin are now the two most commonly used vasoactive drugs worldwide for the management of esophageal variceal bleeding. There are strong arguments in favor of the combination of vasoactive drugs started at the time of presentation with combined endoscopic intervention to control variceal bleeding. And this is really the best therapeutic option in patients with ongoing variceal bleeding. Octreotide and terlipressin significantly reduce variceal pressure and azagous flow, and both were found to be superior to placebo in the control of variceal bleeding. Terlipressin also has some effect, and we'll look at this, in the improvement of renal perfusion in patients with cirrhosis who have hepatorenal syndrome. So what this study found was that terlipressin was not inferior to octreotide in its efficacy for controlling variceal bleeding. And most importantly in this study, there were no significant adverse events with either terlipressin or octreotide, particularly cardiac adverse events. There are benefits of terlipressin across the spectrum of the severity of ascites. So this is really looking at the effects in non-refractory ascites, refractory ascites, and then also following paracentesis. And there have been advantages in non-refractory ascites in terms of heart rate, mean arterial pressure, cardiac output, and systemic vascular resistance, as well as creatinine clearance. In patients with refractory ascites, we can see effects on heart rate, mean arterial pressure, cardiac output, uh, systemic vascular resistance, as well as hepatic venous pressure gradient. And this likely contributes to changes that we can see in uh, GFR, serum creatinine, renal blood flow, urinary sodium, and urinary output. 
But furthermore, you can reduce abdominal circumference, decrease body weight, and decrease the number of paracentesis needed. Following paracentesis, there are effects that we can see with terlipressin as well in terms of mean arterial pressure and SVR, but also in terms of serum creatinine, plasma renin, and serum sodium. This is a small pilot study looking at CTI or continuous terlipressin infusion in patients with refractory ascites that are managed in an outpatient setting. So this is an interesting way to use terlipressin. This was a study looking at five patients who were awaiting liver transplantation who received standard of care for four weeks, then followed by continuous terlipressin infusion at the doses shown there by PICC line for four weeks. And this was administered during a daily home visit and patients continued with regular large volume paracentesis as needed. Weight, urine sodium, and other parameters were assessed. And what you see in the graph on the left is that the volume of, of ascites drained decreased. The mean volume of ascites drained went from about 23 liters per month to about 12 liters, which was significant. On the right, you can see the corresponding weight change with treatment. Again, there was about a 7.3 kilogram uh, mean weight loss. This uh, resulted in about 7.6% of total body weight. And so a weight reduction was also seen over the period of treatment in this uh, pilot study. Important is that the authors did not report any uh, significant side effects or hospital admissions during this period. So this led to a larger study looking at continuous terlipressin infusion uh, delivered again in patients uh, in the outpatient setting. Uh, this was looking at 23 patients who were waiting transplantation. They received continuous terlipressin infusion through a PICC line daily at home. And the median treatment was about 50 days. The median MEL decreased from 22.5 to 19, which was significant. There were 15 PICC-related complications and 27 unplanned hospitalizations. And if you look at the right, you can see that over the 50 days, the number of paracentesis or thoracentesis per month fell from approximately 4 to about 1.8. And on the bottom, you can see out to 14 days, uh, the creatinine um, actually improved. Uh, here it is reported in um, unimoles uh, per liter, uh, fell again from about 200 to 120. And this reduction was sustained over the period of treatment. And again, this was significant. There were no serious adverse events, either cardiac or ischemic. And the authors really um, concluded that outpatient uh, continuous terlipressin infusion uh, prevented prolonged hospitalization in patients awaiting transplantation. So we'll end with a couple of uh, clinical scenarios. The first is a 68-year-old man with NASH cirrhosis admitted for refractory ascites and acute kidney injury. His past medical history shows that he has refractory ascites. He's requiring large-volume paracentesis over the prior six months. He has type 2 diabetes on insulin, and he is listed for liver transplantation. On physical examination, he is a febrile. He has a good blood pressure, 110 over 68. He's alert and oriented. He has moist mucous membranes, but he does have moderate ascites and trace edema. He is guaiac negative. 
When looking at his current medications, he is on low-dose diuretics, spironolactone 50 milligrams daily, and furosemide. This is likely um, in large part due to prior effects and uh, the resultant refractory ascites. On imaging, we do an appropriate ultrasound. He has a Doppler to exclude, again, hepatic venous outflow obstruction. He has moderate ascites. His portal vein is patent. He has no evidence of liver cancer. And importantly, he has no evidence of urinary obstruction. When we look at his laboratories, his AST and ALT are relatively stable. Bilirubin is 5.6, albumin 2.7. These are stable as compared to baseline. His sodium is 127, again stable, but his creatinine has elevated. It is now 2.1 as compared to his baseline of 1.1. He now actually fulfills the diagnosis of hepatorenal AKI. His INR is stable, white count is normal, no evidence of infection, hemoglobin is 9.6, no evidence of bleeding, his meld sodium is 32. When we look at his renal studies, his urinary sediment is bland, but he has a low fractional sodium excretion. Again, he fulfills the criteria for hepatorenal syndrome, again, in the setting of refractory ascites. So what would be the next best steps in the management of this patient? There are several listed here. So the first is, should we increase his dose of diuretics? He's clearly not at the maximum dose, but as I've said before, he is now refractory to medical therapy. He really fulfills the uh, notion of refractory ascites. So increasing the diuretics is the wrong thing to do. Likely, we want to try to give him volume back, and so we would actually hold the diuretics at this time. Would it help us to get a transient elastography of the liver? Unlikely. We know he has cirrhosis, and really that's what transient elastography does. It is not appropriate to be done in the setting of ascites. You don't get good readings, but more importantly, it will just tell you what you already know. Should we initiate octreotide and midodrin? Well, this has been the standard treatment that we have used in patients uh, with advanced liver disease and hepatorenal syndrome. There's not good data to support this. But at the present time in the United States, this is what we have available. Should we give them a trial of IV albumin and volume replacement? The answer is yes here, because we want to make sure that volume depletion is not lending toward the acute kidney injury that we see. What about performing a paracentesis? Again, this is important in any patient presenting to the hospital, because patients who have peritonitis, that can precipitate um, refractory ascites, that can precipitate acute kidney injury. So peritonitis always needs to be ruled out. And then finally, terlipressin. You've seen the data. I think terlipressin in this setting would be indicated. It is indicated in Europe and used widely in Europe. Unfortunately, at the present time, we don't have FDA approval, but hopefully this will become available for our use in the near future. The next case is a 54-year-old woman with cirrhosis and esophageal variceal hemorrhage. She has a history of alcohol use disorder for 25 years. She's had two prior failed attempts at rehabilitation. She is a febrile on examination. Blood pressure is good, but she's tachycardic. She is jaundiced. She's alert and oriented times three, but she is wasted. She has minimal ascites. Her lungs are clear. And on rectal examination, she has maroon stools. When you look at her medication, she is taking over-the-counter ibuprofen. As we know, non-steroidal medications can cause GI bleeding in any patient, but the risk is particularly increased in patients with advanced liver disease. They, they, there's no recent imaging to review. 
On laboratory testing, her white count is normal. Hemoglobin is 6.7 from a baseline of 10. Platelet count is 69,000. Kidney function electrolytes are intact. Her albumin is 2.6. She has a pattern on liver testing, AST higher than ALT, consistent with alcoholic um, hepatitis. Her bilirubin is 12.6, and her melt sodium is 28. Appropriately, she gets an NG tube that shows 800 cc's of bright red blood and unfortunately does not clear with lavage. So what are the next best steps in this patient's management? What about a non-selective beta blocker? Well, non-selective beta blockers have been shown to be beneficial, both in terms of preventing first bleed in patients with varices, as well as reducing re-bleeding in a patient who has already bled. Would they be appropriate in this patient, however, who's tachycardic and not yet volume resuscitated? No, I would probably delay the initiation of a non-selective beta blocker to the time of discharge. What about IV fluid resuscitation? Always the first step in somebody who's volume deplete from variceal hemorrhage, so the answer is yes here. Should we be infusing platelets in FFP to correct abnormalities? I haven't shown you the data here, but in fact, Correcting to a, a normal platelet count or normal INR is not beneficial to patients with active GI bleeding and, in fact, may be detrimental because of the excess volume that you infuse, which further drives uh, portal pressures. Initiating IV terlipressin, again, a good option if it's available to us in the United States. Hopefully, this will be available soon. You saw the data suggesting that it is equivalent to octreotide, which is available and commonly used. Urgent endoscopy coupled with a vasoactive drug is very important, so both should be done simultaneously in a patient population with active bleeding. And again, we didn't talk about IV antibiotics, but IV ceftriaxone is indicated in patients with active GI bleeding uh, in the setting of cirrhosis because of the increased risk of bleeding in this clinical setting. In conclusion, Variceal hemorrhage and refractory ascites are serious complications resulting from portal hypertension in patients with decompensated liver disease and are associated with high and significant morbidity and mortality. Diagnosis and management are critical to ensure patients receive guideline-directed therapies. New therapies and approaches to management are currently being investigated, including terlipressin, which is directed to reduce portal hypertension. Early identification of patients with cirrhosis at risk for decompensation is critical in the effective management of these complications. And further studies are needed to determine optimal timing and treatment of these conditions to improve overall survival and outcomes in patients with decompensated liver disease. That concludes our review of current and emerging approaches to managing patients with refractory ascites and esophageal variceal hemorrhage. I hope you found this activity informative and useful to your practice. I thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XNU860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals.